So I've been focusing a lot on law the last couple of months. Many of you might have heard my interview with Eve Kukowski, which came out a few months ago, which is about families, the legality of families, and how young women move within it. And I guess I'm sort of on a bit of a eye off that interview. So when I heard about uh, Between Christ and Caliph, I, I needed to read it. I just felt like it would fill in my gaps in the knowledge and it would um, continue to enrich my knowledge of how legal systems interact. And I know that my dissertation, and my listeners will know this, is about the modern period. It's the intellectual history of the Arabic language press, and it has to do with global history. But what I also like about legal history, it's not simply that I have some sort of a background in Islamic legal theory and Islamic legal history, um, Sharia basically, and sort of stuff. But what I like about that particular form of law and other forms of religious law is that I think, especially for the pre-modern period, it can shed quite a lot of light on how other histories function, so how the social history looks, because sometimes we just don't have the sources for that. Um, so the subject of today's interview, again, between Christ and Caliph, is going to broaden our knowledge and in particular bring us to the Christian communities of the pre-modern Middle East. And uh, my interviewee today for a new books in Middle East studies is Lev Weitz, who is a historian of the Islamic Middle East. He is an assistant professor at the Catholic University of America in the Department of History. He did his PhD in Near Eastern Studies at Princeton University, and his scholarly interests lie in the encounters among Muslims, Christians, and Jews that have shaped the Middle East history from the coming of Islam to the present, at least in his own words. And his new book, out 2018 from University of Pennsylvania Press, is Between Christ and Caliph. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot. Happy to be here. Okay, so we always open the interview with a bit of an intellectual biography question. So... How did you come to academia, and what's the story of this book? Sort of, how do those two fit together? Um, so, I suppose some level it started just when I was in high school, and just started getting in, interested in the history of the history of the Middle East, um, mainly through the news coming out of Israel Palestine. It was sort of my first point of entry, but um, after that, I, I I got really interested in in the idea that this was this region that all these major world religions had come out of, that there was this sort of huge mixture of different languages and different peoples in the regions. And um, I thought that when I got to college, it was something I would want to keep studying. Um, it was that sort of really old and very deep diversity of the region, I think, that got me intellectually interested in it. And so I got to college at New York University and started taking Arabic, found that I was enjoying Arabic. And... Um, and being interested in all in the, the multiple religions of the region, I, uh, I took a class on interreligious relations in the medieval in the medieval Islamic Middle East, and I don't like something about that just clicked for me, I suppose. And um, especially, I, I, I was really kind of fascinated by looking at medieval history and having such sort of so few pieces of evidence and not not very much um, source material, but still trying to kind of piece together how people understood the world around them in such a, in a, in a, in a time, you know, longer ago than today. Um, and trying to tell a story about that world with such little pieces of evidence, sort of like trying to put a puzzle together. And so I was, in, I was sort of enjoying Arabic and then kind of intellectually fascinated by the, the, the endeavor of trying to do medieval history. So then I thought that if, you know, I can do a PhD in this and maybe at least sort of get paid a graduate student stipend to study this for a little while, that wouldn't be a bad thing to do for a few years. So, um, so from there, I, I went um, to, to do a PhD in Middle Eastern history, really sticking with this focus on interreligious relations 
in the in the Middle East in the medieval Middle East. Um, and I sort of so I so I've been studying Arabic since since undergrad. I continued to study Arabic in, in graduate school and being interested in trying to figure out how I could look at multiple religious communities, Muslims, Christians, Jews, sort of whoever in the region. Um, I went, I was at Princeton for graduate school and I could take Syriac there. Um, Syriac being the, one of the sort of liturgical and main literary languages of some of the Christians from the Middle East. There's not a lot of places in the world you can study Syriac. So I thought, all right, I could study this and maybe use this language along with my Arabic to try to put some different kinds of source materials from different religious communities into conversation with each other. And so sort of studying Syriac in, in graduate school and continuing with the Arabic. I then, I was sort of trying to find a dissertation topic, and I started reading through these uh, these law books from the medieval Middle East, from medieval Iraq, really, um, that were written in Syriac by Christians, and I started sort of reading through them, and I thought, oh, these what's going on here? There are these things in it that look a lot like Islamic law. Like, what's, what's going on here? And from that point, I thought, all right, maybe I have a sort of a subject for a study here. I can maybe put these things in a conversation with Islamic intellectual history, Islamic materials. And um, what I found and what the book ended up being about was that um, some of these Christians in medieval Iraq were particularly interested in writing about the family and trying to regulate family life. And so that's sort of what led me to the, the, the book as it became. So one thing I'm always emphasizing when I teach um, or when I give public lectures is that the Middle East is quite diverse. It's not simply Muslims or Arabic speakers. Um, there's quite a variety of languages being spoken. There's quite a, a variety of religions being spoken. Um, and another thing that always interests people as well, because they'll be like, well, when did this all begin? And I'll be like, well, this has been around for quite a while. But also under the Islamic conquest, and I, I felt this was particularly emphasized when I studied um, minority communities under Islam in terms of law as an undergrad. Um, the these communities didn't immediately, you know, didn't immediately convert uh, after the Islamic conquests, um, and this was actually discouraged to some extent. So people are always a little bit surprised. So, can you kind of set the stage for us? What were the different Christian groups populating the medieval Middle East, and also what is Eastern Christianity? Because I also think that that can often be this point of dissonance in people's minds. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, the term Eastern Christianity is is a big fuzzy term. A lot of time people use basically just to mean any kind of Christianity that is not European Christianity, whether it's sort of Catholic Christianity or Protestant Christianity. And oftentimes people even group um, Greek Orthodoxy and Russian Orthodoxy and Eastern Orthodoxy under this big Eastern label. So it's really just this label. It's really just to differentiate um, European and Western Christianities that are probably more familiar to a Western public from everything else. But in fact, especially if you go back to the medieval period, most of the Christians in the world actually lived in the Middle East and sort of the, the Mediterranean world more than in, certainly more than in Western Europe. Um, so in the time period that I'm looking at in the book, which is mainly sort of 7th to 13th centuries, the Christian communities who live throughout the Middle East, they've been there and they've been Christian since before Islam, um, since the sort of later Roman period. And they're really pretty, um, they're really pretty sort of diverse and heterogeneous according to which languages they use. And they also have some certain theological divisions among them. So in Syria and Iraq, if you go back to the medieval period, you would have lots of different Christians, some of whom used Syriac 
right? This Aramaic language is their sort of main literary liturgical language. There are other Christians who still use Greek as their, one of their major languages, but they were increasingly um, taking on Arabic and making that really a Christian language at the same time. The uh, Coptic Christians in Egypt would have been using Coptic as a main language and also starting to take on Arabic and use it both in their everyday lives and also um, also as a, a literary and liturgical language at the same time. So you have this sort of this big mix of different communities that sort of identify differently depending on what kinds of languages they, they use in their religious life and to some degree in their everyday life as well. And then there are also theological divisions among them. And these, these all go back to these major theological debates that happened in the Roman Empire before Islam came and started to sort of divide up the population, the Christian population of the Mediterranean world and the Middle East into different church communities. Um, now, it's sort of a big question how big, really, what those theological divisions meant. And they certainly meant a lot to, uh, to bishops and to, to learned Christians, but they in some situations, they would have made for serious social bound boundaries between kind of everyday Christians on the ground. And in other situations, they probably didn't matter that much. And Christians from different sort of theological denominations probably interacted with each other plenty. So overall, the, um, the Christians of, the, of the, the medieval Middle East and the Mediterranean world, it's a really big population. It's a really diverse one into these different linguistic and different kind of theologically defined church groups. So one thing I'm always sort of confronting when I also teach or explain different things about Islamic history, um, the history of Muslims, um, is to what extent um, Muslims were influenced by quote unquote non-Muslim practices. So to what extent, for example, did like, and there's a few texts on this, like what extent did Zoroastrian kingship influence like the Umayyad and the Abbasid caliphs? Um, so how are these groups, these Christian groups that you're speaking of, how are they affected by unchristian practices, quote unquote, um, pre-Islam? Before Islam, um, in a lot of ways, the sort of rise of Christianity makes some really big changes to the sort of practices and the ways of life that were really typical of the Mediterranean and the, the Middle East more and more broadly. So Christianity, in a lot of ways, before Islam comes around and really tries to change the, the, the life ways of a lot of the kind of ancient Mediterranean world. And this is especially so when you're talking about the family and sexuality, um, because Christianity comes with a pretty strong message that the most pious and the best way to live is to sort of get rid of sexuality in the present world. Um, this is debated by lots of Christian, by lots of different Christian thinkers and Christian groups, and some are more sort of rigorous about it than others. But the overall idea is always that if you can get away from the things that tie us down to this world, especially sexuality and reproduction, the things that sort of keep you rooted in this world, that's the best way to live. So monks, for example, become, who of course are celibate and abstinent, become the, um, the sort of superheroes of the, uh, of the Christian religious community. So that's this really big change from what attitude in the ancient Mediterranean world, where in most communities anyway, and sort of most populations throughout that world, sexuality was viewed as sort of more or less positive, right? That it was, this is obviously how you sort of reproduce and keep a sort of a strong kingdom or a strong community um, continuing on through time. Um, so a big story of sort of the coming of Christianity is trying to kind of adjust lay people's perspectives towards 
sexuality in that way and getting them to rein in basically some of the um some of the typical sexual practices of the ancient world um and these were especially things like visiting prostitutes extramarital sex for men basically only for men um especially in the greco-roman world and sort of trying to get them to to change their perspectives towards sex and say that you know these things are really out of bounds if you want to be a good and faithful christian so when christianity comes it really I mean, it has to deal with these practices that it considers unchristian very quickly and in a, in, a, in a very acute way. And it's a really sort of long story. It really takes centuries, and you, know, you could argue it's still going on down to the present, that debates within Christian communities about what the proper way, um, what the proper attitude for sexuality is that you can have and still sort of be so a good another Christian. part of the story, and I think this is... It's, it's funny because I'm always trying to think in terms of continuity and rupture in my own work, and I never really know quite how to class big historical events uh, with regards to other histories, because we don't do political history. I do intellectual history, you do social and legal history, um, and history of the family. Um, so the Islamic conquests, what's the basic narrative that you would teach to an undergraduate class? of what is What are the Islamic conquests? How did they happen? What's the time period? Sure. So I think, all right, my basic narrative would be we're in the we're in the seventh century, we're in the six hundreds, and in Arabia, which is sort of connected to the world of the Roman Empire and the Persian Empire to the north, it's connected to it, but also it's kind of on the fringes of those bigger empires. Uh, you've got a new religious movement, a new, uh, very importantly, monotheistic religious movement, right? That um, Prophet Muhammad starts in Arabia and manages to to co- get a sort of big a big group of followers around him. We're in the 600s there. And after his death, there's a lot of debate about and what's the future of this community, what's the future of this movement. And for a variety of reasons, that religious movement that's now led by his sort by the prophet's sort of closest companions and followers ends up get coming into conflict with the um with the big empires to its to its north, the Romans and the Persians. And pretty quickly, actually, given the sort of military technology of the time, a reasonably sort of small military group of this of this religious movement manages to conquer a huge swath of territory in the Middle East and sort of the southern and eastern tier of the Mediterranean. So really from North Africa through Egypt, through Syria and Iraq, and then into Iran. And they managed to conquer this territory from the Romans and the Persians, over the course of, I mean, the big chunk of the con- of the, the conquest only takes about 20 years in the mid-600s. Um, and the people to the north, the Romans, the Persians, are pretty surprised by this. They aren't used to sort of a big and effective invasion coming from the south like that. Um, so the political map of the region changes really sort of pretty drastically um, with the Arab Islamic conquest taking that, that territory. Now, sort of one of the big questions is, what does that mean for the social map of the region? What does that mean for the religious map of the region? And when you're in the 600s and the 700s and the early days of Islam, what you really have is a, is a really pretty small group of this new political conquest elite ruling from a few kind of major cities throughout the region, but ruling over a population that's still largely Christian, um, in the former Roman territories in North Africa and the Middle East, probably still lots of Zoroastrians in Iran, 
plenty of Jews scattered throughout this territory and a variety of other sort of small, smaller religious communities um, in a few other locations. So I think there's, in, there's certain narratives of, the, of Islamic history and Middle Eastern history where we kind of have this sense that the Islamic conquest happened and Islamic history has begun and we're in the Islamic world. And I mean, that's true to an, to an extent. Um, but if you look at the sort of immediate moment of the conquest, you're not, we have to remember that you're, we're not in any kind of fully Muslim world. Um, Islam itself is still taking shape and there's tons of really vigorous debate within the Muslim community really about what Islam actually is in this period. And Muslims are really a pretty tiny minority among this sort of much bigger and very, very diverse population that's rooted in these sort of late antique Roman and Persian religions. So, I mean, you touched on exactly what I was hoping you were talking about, about this issue of rupture and continuity and, and what that means for these different types of history. And your book in, in particular is about, you do take one particular group, the Syriac Christian community, you look at how different marital practices, how family history, how um, it was affected uh, by the encounter with Islam. So, does religious authority, does it change pre, like post-conquest? Like how significant is that shift? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the arguments in the book is that religious authority does start to change in some significant ways post-conquest. And I suppose sort of the, the most basic way is that pre-conquest, in Christian territories in the Middle East, you tend to have sort of civil imperial authorities, like the civil authorities of the Roman Empire, and you also have the civil Zoroastrian authorities of the Persian Empire, and then you have the um, ecclesiastical authorities of the church. And oftentimes, especially in the Roman Empire, there's not really, there's not always a strong line between the civil authorities and the, the church authorities that can blur, but there is still this sense that... Um, there is the empire with its traditions, and as much as it gets Christianized in a lot of ways in the late antique period, it has its own traditions and it's right. It's not one and the same with the church. After the Islamic conquests, those civil authorities, in many respects, are, are gone, essentially. You have some, now, some of them will sort of maintain positions in the Islamic government, but they don't necessarily have the same kind of a same kind of official official um, power that they once did. And so gradually, within the first sort of maybe 200 years of Muslim rule in the Middle East, the Christian authorities of the Syriac churches, and this is what I argue in the book, start to try to kind of take on more and more, um, more and more scope of authority and try to run more and more facets of lay life um, as time goes on. They do this both because sort of the Muslim government is happy to let them do so. And because there has been a certain kind of clearing out of certain older authorities that were there before the conquest. So the fact, so the big, so one of the big stories of the book is that Christian religious authorities, like mainly bishops, um, start to try to start to write law and start to try to regulate lay life in a way that they didn't really do before the conquest. Um, Christianity Again, sort of going back to this theme of trying to get away from the things that root you in this world had been often uh, pretty sort of skeptical of the real utility of, of sort of civil law, of law in the present world to, um, to have any real sort of purpose if ultimately we're all aiming for the afterlife. But after the Islamic conquests, these Christian bishops start to sort of adjust their perspectives on that a little bit. And because 
they have a, a new kind of scope to regulate lay life, they're going to start trying to use law and try to get into sort of regulate further corners of lay life than they used to. So how else are Christians functioning in this new Islamic empire, just for context? Because I think one lesson that I was taught, I'm not always quite sure to what extent this is always true, is they were a particularly important element of the bureaucracy, of the new Islamic bureaucracy. Yeah, um, it's def- definitely in the aftermath of the, the Muslim conquest, especially within the first, especially, especially in the first sort of century, let's say, after the Islamic conquest, so from the sort of mid-600s and into the 700s, the Christians are a really important part of the bureaucracy of the new Islamic caliphate. Um, and I, I mean, one way to think about it is that they sort of have the, they have the institutional memory for how you collect taxes and how you register taxes and how you do all the things that a pre-modern, pre-industrial state wants to do, which is mainly extract resources from the peasants and everybody else. Um, and because they had been staffing the bureaucracies in the Roman Empire, um, and probably in at least Iraq and some parts of the Persian Empire, they, can t- they tend to continue to play those roles um, for the, uh, the new Islamic empire for quite a while. And that isn't to say that the Muslim Arabs don't also um, participate in and play really important roles in the bureaucracy, and they, they clearly do pretty quickly, and they start using Arabic as at least one of the administrative languages to manage, um, sort of manage state affairs very quickly. But the uh, but because you know, again there's sort of that institutional memory with the people who are already there in the Middle East, Christians do tend to play very very big roles um, in state bureaucracies in Iraq and in Egypt, and they do so really for centuries into the medieval period. And later in the medieval period, it becomes a point of debate for certain sort of certain more sort of austere, rigorous Muslim clerics who complain quite a bit about why their Muslim states employ so many Christians. So it's another, it's a, it's another good way to, to look at the Islamic world and remember that in many ways it's very importantly Islamic. That also doesn't mean it's only Islamic, right? Because the, uh, this is one of the sort of crucial ways in which a non-Muslim com- community really keeps the whole thing running. Yeah, and I think there's quite a lot of debate about how to use the term Islamic as it is. And I think it, it differs for different fields of study. Like, like, I think in the modern period, I tend to gravitate more towards Muslim world versus Islamic world because you don't have an empire. You don't have this big organizing factor. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always, it's always interesting to sit down with people who study either the pre-modern or the medieval and to discuss this difference in terms because I do think that when people try to make these big innovations and in how to talk about Islam, often they forget that there is, there are, there are different fields of study within this and there are different ways of looking at it. And I think in some ways, what I like about your book is you clearly have a working knowledge of Islamic law that allowed you, like you noted earlier, when you were reading these law texts, um, these Syriac law texts from Iraq, when you were first beating the project, you were able to see those similarities. And um, I mentioned that I talked to Eve Kapowski a while ago, and that was something else I really enjoyed about her book was she clearly understood how Islamic law works in a way that she was able to see where there were nodes of interaction. Um, but still, again, the problem of how to talk about these societies remains. Um, so onto a slightly similar issue, what I think is really interesting about, and this is what I find really valuable, even though I'm a modernist about reading books like yours, is it reminds me that terms and ideas aren't consistent, right? Like, like I just mentioned Islam and what the idea of Islamic is, and what the idea of Muslim is changes um, over with time. Um, the political considerations of how we use the terms differ. And 
one thing me and Eve talked about when we talked about her book was the fact that you can't talk about adolescence the same way. Like her book is about female adolescence and you can't make the assumption that teenagers exist the same way across history and across time and space. <laughs> so I want to ask you the same question about the household. How is the household structured and how is it referred to in these legal texts? Um, yeah, no, that's a great question. And that's a great question. And it's, um, yeah, and, it, and of course, yeah, the family, the household, right? These seem like sort of human universals or something, right? Everybody knows everybody knows what that means. But of course, as you're saying, I mean, you're absolutely right. These things change hugely over time. Um, and yeah, they change hugely over time. And so that's actually one of the, th that's one of the, the features of the world I'm trying to study that, you know, might at first seem most familiar to a reader. But um, it's also, it's, so it's important to sort of really quickly try to get the idea that this is actually, this can be a very different world anyway. Um, especially even in, even in some institution, it seems as so sort of universal as humanity as a family or a household. Um, so I think I'd give two, two major ways that households in the world that I'm studying differ, at least from, I suppose what's typical in many corners of the United States, for example. So one thing is that households could frequently include many dependents who are not part of the biological family, and that would especially include slaves, right? Um, I mean, we're dealing with a, a Middle Eastern world where for centuries slavery has been totally accepted as a standard institution and still will be for centuries later. So certain households that would have had the means um, would have had all kinds of dependents in them that weren't biologically related to the sort of core family within it, and the core family had a strong sense that they were biologically or sort of linearly related and that slaves were a subordinate class um, that were part of the household but did not have the same kind of claim on the family name or cachet or anything like that. So there were certainly slaves and there are certainly slaves um, within medieval Middle Eastern households. We also should imagine that in some territories, some areas at least, right, multi-generational households with up to three generations and perhaps more, and perhaps multiple multiple brothers, or in some regions, maybe multiple sisters with all their families could coexist within similar households. These things are all possibilities. Um, and those are some of the ways in which I think um, a household would probably be particularly distinct. But then there's the caveat that, unfortunately, I don't really have precise um, census information or anything like that to give any kind of sense of where one type of household predominated or why or what. This is to some degree impressionistic going off of literary sources and how they describe households. And I think one other really important thing to, to keep in mind when you're talking about the household in a pre-industrial and pre-modern context is that urban and rural households potentially were probably quite different. Um, for one thing, rural households in all likelihood also um, functioned as some kind of an economic unit to one degree or another, where each person in it um, probably contributed some kind of labor to the kind of, to the collective agrarian endeavors of the household as a whole. Um, in urban spaces, it's possible that they could have been, that households could have been much more sort of diverse in labor activity. Um, I don't have a ton of exact data, but again, that sort of difference between urban and rural is a really sort of crucial one, I think, and one to keep in mind. 
So how did sex figure into the household and family life? Because I think that we, there's a certain understanding of how sex is viewed within Christian and Judaic lives. It's quite different from the Islamic view towards sex, um, which is that it's not simply for procreation, but in, and this is just, again, from my understanding as an outsider, there's this understanding that you, that, that sex is for procreation. There's definitely within the Christian tradition and within the, the, the Christian traditions of the Middle East that I'm writing about to come into contact with Islam, there's definitely this very different attitude towards sex and the purposes of sexuality within the life of the household, the life of the couple. Um, there's this pretty strong Christian tradition that, that emphasizes that sort of licit sex really should be for procreation. Basically, you shouldn't be having too much fun with sex outside of that. And that's a strong part of the tradition. It's a strong part of the Christian tradition within which um, uh, all the, the, the communities that I'm studying are operating in. It's something that the bishops will sort of push and emphasize and write about a lot. Um, but that doesn't always mean that it tells us anything about what people are actually doing. And at that point, in some ways, you have to just kind of speculate um, and speculate a bit as to whether sort of regular Christians on the ground to what degree they tried to follow what the bishop said, to what degree they sort of ignored it. It's often speculation, but I, I take an example from the book that I do have some sort of examples of where the fact of being sort of embedded in this broader society where there aren't only Christian attitudes towards sex, but there are other ones as well. Um, many Christians will sort of start to approach sex in the household uh, in ways different from what the bishops would want. Um, for example... When, uh, I have these, exam these, um, these examples of sort of very rich Christian doctors in medieval Baghdad. When Baghdad is this capital of the Islamic Caliphate, this major, really rich, important, cosmopolitan, to some degree, world city. And there are these very rich Christian doctors who serve the caliph and serve his retinues and everything. And they start to keep slave concubines, essentially, which is basically keeping a form of polygamy within your household. Um, just like the super elite Muslims with whom they sort of interact on a daily basis. So the bishops really don't like this, right? And for them, this is sort of excessive sexuality that's outside the bounds of marriage. This is completely unchristian to the, from the perspective of the bishops, but it's an example of Christians who still maintain that they're Christians, um, taking a very kind of different attitude towards sex and sexuality than the kind of more rigorous, learned Christian tradition would say. So you can kind of we can see that happening in the sources because that happens again in Baghdad, which is this really major, right, vibrant intellectual city. There's lots of source material that comes out of it. Whether there's a also there's a sort of broader diversity of attitudes towards sex and pra the practice of sex within Christian households, sort of elsewhere in the uh, in the Islamic world. It's harder to say because we just don't always have the sources. But I would like to think, and I, I would probably argue that there's certainly a sort of a, a broader array of practice and attitudes um, on the ground than purely what we see in the sources, especially because sources we have are sort of regulatory ones, right, that are trying to tell people to behave certain ways. It's a pretty common historical method to try to read that against the grain and say, well, if one person is trying to tell someone else to behave a certain way, it means that other person is probably doing the opposite in the first place. Yeah, it's, it's, I think one of the great 
challenges of using legal text. And one Islamic law text, uh, Islamic law class I had, I remember the professor commented, you know, you can use a lot of these for social history. And it was an interesting conversation we had about to what extent you could use these um, responsa, right? Like, like how, like you have the question, but do you really have anything other than the question? And you can't really quantify it to the same extent. Um, to quantify something like that, you need like a huge diversity of documents, which we have like for the Jewish community with the Cairo Ghanese to some extent. Um, but at the same time, like you, you don't necessarily have the sense of practice. You don't have the sense of what's going on behind people's closed doors. And it's one of those, I think, as, as you mentioned at the very beginning of this interview, you know, you are taking these little scraps of paper and basically trying to draw a narrative between them, which is such a difficult job. And then as it is, pre-modernists have so many languages that you need to learn at the same time. So yeah, it's a difficult task. Um, so uh, to get into the idea of the, I mean, the point of the book is to draw lines between Islamic legal history to some extent and Christian legal history. I think that's one of the, the, the themes running through the book. Um, so in Islamic law, Muslims can intermarry with, you know, intermarry with, uh, can marry with other religious groups to some extent. And of course, in the very early period, you don't necessarily have this same issue of the Shia Sunni divide. It looks very different at that point in time. So there isn't that question of whether or not um, Muslims can intermarry like that. So how does Christian marriage law look at this pe- during this period? And is it influenced by Islamic law as these massive political changes are happening to the region? Like, can they marry different religious groups? Can they marry outside um, of religion itself? So the, the, the view of Christian bishops is generally that sort of in theological terms, Christians can't marry sort of non-Christians because um, the idea is that According to the Bible, marriage makes two people one flesh, and you can't sort of bring a non-Christian into the, the broader body of Christ, into the broader Christian communion sense um, at marriage, you know, the two, the, the two become one flesh. So you really, you can't marry a non-Christian. That's the, the theological explanation. The, but the bishops will say that they're basically fine with Christian men marrying non-Christian women because they essentially assume that those non-Christian women will convert to the Christianity of their husbands and be sort of brought into the community as a, um, yeah, as a new Christian. So this is one of the ways in which this Christian law mirrors Islamic law and also reflects the broader patriarchal and patrilineal structures that are just pretty typical of the Mediterranean and the Middle East more broadly, which is to say that the, the idea is that the religion of the, the, the husband, father, chief male, right, defines the religion of the household as a whole. So Christian communities or the Christian bishops, the people writing Christian law, Syriac Christian law in the medieval Middle East, much like Muslims, will make this allowance for saying, look, we can bring non-Christian women into the household through marriage, basically because we know that they're going to become part of the Christian community and sort of add to the size and the growth of the Christian community um, in the present world. Just like Muslim men can marry non-Muslim women with the assumption that the children are going to be Muslim and you're sort of, um, you're sort of adding to the growth of the Islamic community through that. So that's a way in which Christian law kind of mirrors Islamic law. And I think to a degree, there's certainly a, a conscious mirroring of it when the bishops are writing in that way. But it's also, um, 
it's also just a function, again, of the fact that there are also these sort of deeper structures there. And we were talking about sort of continuity and rupture earlier, and this is, a, this is a sort of a, a good hint in that direction. Patrilineal patriarchal assumptions are sort of just are part of the, the common language of the societies of the Mediterranean, the medieval Middle, Middle East. And in some ways, those two sort of legal perspectives are kind of functions of those, again, sort of deeper structures and assumptions that have been there for centuries. That is that chief men, patriarchs, define the religion, define the identity of the household, the identity of the family, and therefore, you, um, uh, yeah, you can, you can bring in women, you can bring in wives into the household. Um, you cannot marry daughters or other women off to, um, to members of other religions because you're sort of by nature, uh, or by the nature of that activity, you'd be hurting your own religious community. So um, you saying that gives me a thought about um, the way in which society itself is figuring into the thoughts of these bishops. Are they thinking about how households themselves make up the greater social fabric? I mean, I would argue that they are starting to think in those terms. Um, and there's, I mean, the, the notion that sort of that the, the church in the present world is built of smaller households. That goes that goes way back to, to Paul's letters in the New Testament in a lot of ways. But I do think that the bishops are starting to think about that way, thinking about that more concretely in the Islamic period, in this period I'm studying, because they start to, in their legal writings, try to regulate really the kind of material, the really sort of nitty-gritty material aspects of marriage and building households, things like what do you do with property? Uh, sort of, you know, what kind of property when you get married, what kind of gift does the husband have to give to the wife? What kind of gift does the wife or her household have to bring to the marriage? What happens to their property when they die? These are the, these are the issues that the bishops are really concerned with writing about in the Islamic period. And this is exactly the kind of stuff they tended not to write about in earlier times before the coming of Islam. So they're starting to really think about the kind of nitty gritty material constitution of Christian households. And I think in a lot of ways they're thinking about that because family problems are exactly the kind of problems regular people have, and they're probably going to be coming to the bishops to sort of ask them about this. But because the bishops are trying to regulate those issues, they're kind of keying themselves and keying the church more materially, more directly into the, the material activities of Christian households. And in that way, they are thinking about trying to make sure that those households are sort of behaving in a properly Christian way, sort of, yeah, in connection to and in, in the service of that broader church in the present world. So I, again, I asked this question to Eve Krakowski when I spoke to her, and I think your book does fit, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, it fits under this this um, this rubric of what family history is, especially in the pre-modern Middle East. Um, would how would you say that family history, which has its roots in European, the writing of European histories, how would you say it differs? I mean, I know that the sources are different, um, and that we we talked again about how you can glean and how you can make assumptions and how how responsa can be tricky to work with um, in legal texts. But would you necessarily cast your book as a family history? Do you think that there are possibilities for writing more family histories? If so, um. 
So I definitely think there's possibility for writing further family history within the Middle East, um, within the pre-modern Middle East. Um, and I'm hoping to do more of that in the near future, um, partly because there, there really are still lots of documentary source materials, mainly from Egypt, and Eve would have talked about this a lot, of course, the kind of material she works with from the Cairo Geniza. Um, but there's also a lot of Arabic documentary material from Egypt, from medieval Egypt, that doesn't come directly from the Jewish communities of Cairo. And that documentary material, this is the kind of stuff that historians of Europe have written, um, and especially Italy, have written the history of the family with exactly that kind of material. And then in later periods in the Middle East, of course, there's a lot of really, really great his family and gender history in the Ottoman period and in uh, the early modern um, Middle East. So the degree to which it's writing family history, the degree which is different from the, tr the, the tradition of, of family history in Europe or the history of the family in Europe, um, certainly the source base is a big one. And but this is a field, it's sort of a heuristic framework for doing history that I think is perfectly usable and perfectly transferable to um, the contexts of, of the Middle East. I mean, for one thing, throughout the Mediterranean world and the pre-modern world, we're dealing with pre-industrial conditions. Um, yeah, families that are regions that remain largely agrarian for most of their history, um, pre-industrial modes of production with everything that, that means for how you sort of organize a family and what it does in its labor. So there are sort of, there's commonalities between Europe and the Mediterranean world and the Middle East in the medieval period that for me makes it perfectly reasonable to, to take sort of family history, certainly gender history, and look at the Middle East um, with that framework. At the same time, of course, um, there are different cultural and religious traditions and assumptions going on in these two different regions. And the way that those interact with the sort of common material circumstances, I think, lets you tell kind of a different story, right? So a sort of basic, again, a basic distinction here would be that you're writing the history of the family in Europe as it relates to Christianity. Um, Christianity is the major right, religious movement with, with its particular moral perspectives that the families and the, the peoples of Europe are interacting with, resisting, whatever, over the course of the medieval period. You look at the Middle East, and this is, I think, a big part of what this book is about. The thing that really defines the, uh, the Christian communities I'm looking at is precisely that they're trying to navigate their own Christian commitments with the, the social mores of this broader Islamic world that also inform them at the same time. So that kind of tension, right, leads to different kinds of um, problems and different kinds of uh, uh, features of Christian households. And again, I'll sort of bring back that example of the polygamous Christians in, um, yeah, in medieval Baghdad who can, who, they have grounds on which they can say, look, we can do polygamy, why not? Sort of our neighbors are doing it as well, which if you're in Christian Europe, it's a little harder to make that claim. Yeah, can you speak more to that particular example? I just think it's so fascinating because, I mean, in the Islamic world, in the modern period, it, polygamy still exists, but it's largely been marginalized. And it's always really interesting to trace the history of, of, of how polygamy works Islamically. But, you know, in the Christian case, I think most people living in this modern day and age would only associate polygamy with the Mormons. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, this was, you know, 
when I, when I was trying to work on this book, I was thinking, all right, I want to look at how Christians and Muslims interact and, you know, what are the, what are the different modes of interaction? Of course, finding Christian polygamists was just still probably my favorite part of the book. It's one of the, you know, the things that really jumped out and was fun to write about. Um, so one thing to remember about polygamy is that, again, we don't really have any census data, unfortunately, and so it's hard to, to say anything about broader patterns. But in all likelihood, it was only ever a very tiny minority of the population anywhere that would have had the resources to, to support polygamy um, or to, for, to support polygamous households. Um, and so, right, in, in practical terms, in the vast majority of, of Muslim households in the medieval Middle East, the vast majority presumably were not polygamous. Um, and both for having, both because they did not um, have the resources to support it and also because this is little studied, but there are probably also sort of moral undercurrents running throughout the, these societies in different locations that also might have been against it. That having been said, it was lawful, right, within the sort of bounds defined by the Quran and by um, Muslim scholars. So, again, what I found was that the places where polygamy definitely happened was at the super high elite of a super rich pre-modern empire like the Abbasid Caliphate. And so the super elite there in Baghdad, people like the caliph, his viziers, um, major military figures there, they had the resources to have these absolutely enormous households. And basically having slave concubines and having polygamous households was essentially a practice of status, right? It's something that you can do to show off your status. And Christians in Baghdad were intimately integrated into those elite spheres, especially as bureaucrats again, so really sort of top bureaucrats, and also as doctors. So the, um, the sort of great doctors of Baghdad, not all of them, but many of them were Christian, um, came from these few locations in Iraq. And they moved in these super elite circles around the Muslim court where people had gigantic, um, often had very large numbers of concubines, these huge polygamous households. And there's this sense that they saw themselves both as Christians and as sort of elite subjects of the caliph. And therefore, they thought, you know, why not? We can, we can do this as well. This is, a, this is a perfectly acceptable social practice. So there's these hints in biographical dictionaries where you get reports of these Christian doctors having, um, having uh, uh, multiple concubines and various bishops and other concerned memories, members of the Christian community coming and knocking on their doors and trying to get them to give this up, basically. And so this is the kind of thing that it clearly persists in a, in a setting like Baghdad, where, again, you've got Christians closely integrated into elite Muslim circles. This isn't in the book, but there's also a good amount of evidence for this happening in Egypt as well, in, um, which is another place where Christians serve the government, serve the Muslim government, move a lot in the elite Muslim circles. And there's tons of complaints about elite Christian laymen in medieval Egypt also having concubines and sort of partaking of this status symbol that was available to males within the sort of overall legal and moral framework of this medieval Islamic world. So we can see it pop up in these cases that deal with sort of super elite people such that it gets written about in the sources. Um, but I would think, again, that across most of the Islamic world, polygamous households are probably pretty rare. And what are definitely rare are the really big ones that characterize the super elites in the imperial capitals. 
Uh, that's also a problem with pre-modern. Well, pre-modern and a lot of early modern sources is um, you don't, well, even to the, like, I'd say 20th century modern Middle Eastern history still have this problem is a lot of histories are histories of elites and you can't necessarily, because like you said, they're the ones that get written about. They're the ones who normally have the resource and the access to different religious authorities in different ways that these questions can be voiced or can be thrown around a bit um, either theoretically or because these things are being practiced. And it, it is something that I think needs to be considered, but it's such a, it's, you're absolutely right. It's definitely one of the more, it's the things that makes you stop when you open the book and you see it in the table of contents. You're like, what? I can't wait to get to that section of the book. <laughs> um, to switch gears for a second, because you've already spoken to what kind of sources you use. And to some extent, you've spoken to the languages. What does the field work for a project like this in medieval Middle Eastern history, in the history of uh, Christian Syriac communities? What did it look like? And um, I guess as a follow-up question to that, what's your advice to someone coming into the field? Because you were really lucky. You were at Princeton, where, as you mentioned, it's sort of um, a center for Syriac studies. Um, it's produced some of the uh, great Syriac scholars of today um, or has functioned as a place where a lot of them have gathered. So there's yourself, there's Jack Tumnus, there's Christian Sonner, and Christian and Jack both have books coming out this fall as well. Yeah, it's like this huge wave of Syriac um, Syriac source, uh, sources being used in um, upcoming monographs. So what would be your advice to someone coming into the field? So it's a two-part question again. So what's the field work look like? And then also, what's your advice to someone coming into the field of Syriac studies? Sure. Um, so for me, the, the source material that I used, a lot of it was published texts, um, things that had been published, actually a lot of it by German Orientalists in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, there's sort of a big glut of publication, not a glut is actually playing it too strongly, but there are a lot of Syriac publications um, edit, of edited texts that were published by, yeah, especially German Orientalists and some others as well in the, the late 19th and early 20th century. So I don't have archives, right? I'm working in a period before we have any um, any really sort of coherent, preserved bodies of documentary texts. So I'm working with literary texts that were written by bishops or Muslim um, legal scholars, right, and various other sort of written texts like that. So a lot of what I'm working with is published stuff that is available at either sort of good academic libraries or that even now you can get, of course, more and more online if they're from pre-copyright eras. There's also a lot of Syriac manuscripts that I ended up needing to look at for, for this project. Most of those have ended up in European libraries, um, of course, because of the broader colonial history of the Middle East in the 19th and early 20th centuries. So the British Library um, in in, in London is really sort of the one really big, super important um, uh, collection of Syriac manuscripts. I also looked at Syriac manuscript collections in Cambridge and the Vatican Library, had to look at least some Islamic legal texts that haven't been published much in Istanbul and in Cairo. Um, but one other thing that I should mention is that the, the, the Hill Museum and Manuscript Library, which is in Collegeville, Minnesota, has been doing really, really great work in collaboration with, um, with Christian communities and scholars throughout the Middle East and in other parts of the world, actually, for years now of digitizing and doing what they can to um, preserve material elements of some of, some of these communities and their heritage um, that in some cases, 
lot of cases over, over the past few years, they really have been in serious danger, especially in Iraq and in parts of Turkey. So the Hill Museum and Manuscript Library is, has, is putting together and sort of building all the time this really great digital library of Syriac, Arabic, actually Ethiopic, all kinds of other manuscripts in the languages of the, of the Christian Middle East. And they do so in collaboration, I think, in really good ways with, um, with local people, local scholars, local communities. So one thing, if you were sort of coming into the field and you said, all right, I wanted to study Christianity, or if I wanted to study sort of Eastern Christianity in the context of Islamic history, one good thing is that the Hill Museum and Manuscript Library is making a lot of resources available that certainly were difficult of access before and in some ways only even more difficult of access. Um, so one of so a few sort of pieces of advice if someone actually wanted to, you know, come in and try to start studying these kinds of things. So I was really lucky just to be at Princeton for graduate school because I could take Syriac there. And I didn't, you know, before I got to Princeton, I didn't necessarily know I was going to do that. But since I could, and I thought this might be a good way to study interreligious relations, I might as well do it. And I ended up really liking it and obviously really, you know, enjoying the sources I got to work with. So, I mean, one thing is that there really is still a lot of room for taking the materials of the Christian communities of the Middle East, studying them in conversation with Muslim writings, with the Islamic context, the Islamic social context more broadly. Whether you're talking about materials in Coptic or Syriac, stuff in Greek as well, stuff in Armenian. Um, especially in the Syriac world, Syriac studies is kind of a small little, it's definitely a small little uh, uh, academic niche. And much of it is pretty heavily invested in theology and the writings of sort of, you could sort of say, single great male theologians, basically. And there's a lot of textual study. There's plenty of textual study still to be done, but there's really a lot that could be done with, again, reading those kind of sources against or in conversation with Arabic and Islamic materials at the same time. Um, so if you can, if you actually want to go in this field and you can pick up another language in addition to Arabic, that's a, that's a great place to start. And one other point of advice I would give though, if you wanted to study the, we'll call it, you know, if you want to study the Islamic period, but you want to study, um, Christians or other non-Muslim communities, um, I think it's also really important to be grounded in the, the historiographical study of Islam and to understand the Islamic context or what Islam means to whatever you're interested in as well. And that's partly kind of professional advice because, first of all, if you want to go into academia, there are not very many um, academic jobs in pre-modern Middle Eastern history in the first place. And you... And... Sort of, I, mean, I think rightfully so in many ways. Most institutions, if they're going to hire for their history department or their religion department one person to be the person who teaches Islam, they want someone who knows something about Islam, right, and who actually studies it. So keeping that as sort of part of your, part of your docket, part of your portfolio, and really part of your project, um, and keeping a strong foot in the historiography of Islam and in, in sort of Islamic studies in some way, I think is, is really important for anybody who actually might find themselves studying something like I study. Um, I think that's a really good piece of advice, just because as you said, there are so few positions and I, I mean, they're, they're 
probably fewer than there are in modern Middle Eastern history. And having that flexibility is really important. Um, and again, that's something I really admire about uh, pre-modernists, medievalists, is the ability to sort of do this acrobatics and do so many different things at once just because the field that you're expected to cover is so broad. And the time period, like with the modern period, you're expected to cover like 150 years, 200 years of history. Uh, you're expected to cover quite a lot and all these different groups and, and juggle all these different languages. It's, it's so impressive. Um, so something else I wanted to ask you, a more historiographical question about the history of the field of medieval Middle Eastern history. Uh, and you mentioned this in the book several different times. The fact that it's been oriented towards Islam for so long. And as you mentioned, you know, Syriac cities is a small niche community and it, it fits into this large umbrella, but at the same time, it doesn't necessarily. And, and a lot of people who focus on Islam or focus on um, Islamic civilization don't necessarily have the languages or the ability or the knowledge of these Christian communities. Um, so why were these Christian groups marginalized in scholarship for so long? Yeah, I think in some ways, I think in some ways there's sort of a, very obvious, in a lot of ways, understandable sort of presentist bias, right? I mean, the Middle East is a region's majority Muslim down today, right? And looking in hindsight, as scholars from the present day, when we see the, the Muslim conquest happen back in the seventh century, I mean, we know where it's heading, right? Uh, eventually, over the course of multiple, multiple centuries, um, the uh, the Middle East is going to be a will be a majority Muslim um, world if you take the region as a whole, right? Um, and of course. For much of that history, institutions and traditions associated with Islam somehow have been very crucial in um, like defining how that how that world develops. So it it does make a lot of sense, right, to put Islam at the center of the story when you're telling the history of the Middle East. And there's certain periods in which it makes really a lot of sense. Um, and so for that reason, within sort of Middle East studies more broadly, sure, um, to the degree to which kind of religious studies and Islamic studies occupies the biggest chunk of that field in, in, in the study of the pre-modern region. Um, Islam has been at the center of it. And I don't sort of, I don't have a, I don't, ha I don't have a problem with that in and of itself, but I do think that that perspective skews our view of the social history of the region, especially in certain periods. Um, because it's the development of Islam is not the only story that's happening in the Middle East once Muslims sort of come on the scene, right? So a big case that I'm making in this book is that if we go back to the 7th, 8th, ninth century and want to understand the society there as it is at the time, we have to remember that Islam is one story that's happening, but in fact, most of the population is still not Muslim. And um, what, whatever they're doing is a crucial part of the, uh, of the social history of the region as well. So... Part of the idea is to bring them into the picture, but part of the idea is also to say that actually whatever those non-Muslims are doing tells you about a lot about Islam, or at least about the development of an Islamic society and an Islamic empire at the same time. Because the transformations in the Christian community that I'm trying to write about in the book, where, again, especially law comes in in new ways, there's sort of some new attitudes towards the family. This is all happening in response to one degree or another to the establishment of the Islamic Caliphate and to the emergence of Islamic law. So even though the subject of my story is Christian communities for the most part, they're not converting to Islam. But in some sense, they are participating in the creation of what's a characteristically Islamic society because they're changing themselves, right, in response to this new religion and its leaders and its institutions that have come on the scene. 
so that's really the case that I, I really want to emphasize that if we're, we want to be historians, right? And we want to go back and try to understand how people in a particular time period operated in and understood the world around them. Um, we have to take into account this really huge religious diversity, not to mention other forms of diversity that characterize the region, especially in the early centuries. So we can call it the Islamic world, and I sort of don't have a problem with that, calling it the Muslim world, the Islamic caliphate, because um, the rise of the Arabic language, the spread of the Arabic language, the, uh, the spread of the religion has an effect on everybody else there. But everybody else's story is just as important a part of the overall narrative of the region's social history. Well, I hope that that with, like I said, the wave of scholarship that's been coming out this year and the next couple of years, we're going to get towards a more complete story and uh, filling in all these little gaps. I mean, to the best of our ability with the sources that we have. Uh, so I want to congratulate you on the new book. I know it's been a long project and yeah. And I hope that it's received well. I think it will be. I think, I mean, I'll say the same thing I said to Eve. I thought that the footnotes were really gorgeous and that you really took your time with them. Um, and that the text itself just read really easily. And I hope that it gets assigned and that, again, that it, it gets, it's part of this wave of scholarship that is recognized towards making all these important um, changes in our approaches to the Middle East, both medieval, pre-modern and modern. So we always close the interview with a question about what the interviewee is currently working on. So can you tease a bit of your upcoming work? You mentioned a few different leads. Uh, sure. Yeah. So what am I trying to work on right now? Um, after just having completed my first project, and thanks for your kind words about it, I appreciate it a lot, of course. Um, it's a little difficult to try to shift gears to a new big project, but I'm trying to, I'm working on the history of Egypt, and I'm basically trying to get into documentary evidence and a little bit more of um, sort of nitty-gritty nitty of family and social history that I mentioned earlier was sort of more possible in Egypt. Um, than in other regions of the pre-modern Middle East. So one thing I'm doing is looking, I've got a project looking at um, legal documents produced in Egypt by largely by Muslim notaries. Um, and it just so happens that sort of Christian names are everywhere in the, the legal documents we have, mainly from Fatimid Egypt, especially in the 10th and 11th centuries, but also a little earlier. So one sort of project I have going right now is trying to think about what um, the evidence of Christian um, sort of participation in Islamic legal institutions or at least patronizing Muslim notaries to get their legal documents drawn up, what that kind of tells us about interreligious relations in um, medieval Egypt and especially in rural and provincial areas because that's actually where a lot of this material comes from. And that's, that's, that's actually a big benefit. It's not coming from Cairo. It's all coming from mainly the Fayoum and other provinces in Upper Egypt. So that's one project that I'm trying to think about right now. And then there's also in the, in the pre-modern documentary record that comes from Egypt, there are some collections of letters and other documents from Muslim merchant families, um, kind of from the early medieval Middle East, especially from the ninth century. And I think there's still a lot of work to be done on that. And I'm, this is all very sort of, this is all ill-formed. I haven't started on any of this at all, but I think there's a really interesting possibility of doing, writing some kind of broader family and economic history, potentially, of the region, using some of the, using the papers of a few of these families as a kind of locus, nodal point out of which to expand. So those are uh, two directions I'm hoping to head in in the, in the near future. 
and inshallah, we'll see how it goes. Well, best of luck. And I really hope, again, that the book is well-received and that, yeah, this is the beginning of a, of, a, of a different page being turned. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it.